morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Jake Stouffer, and our reading today will be from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 35. That can be found on page 823 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I'll give you a second to turn there. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him... The master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, let me, uh, let me ask you to pray with me one more time. So you've heard we're talking about peacemaking. I bet you have thoughts about that already. I bet you have situations and circumstances and things that are on your mind about what to forgive and how to forgive and what not to step towards that might feel unsafe. And I just want to give you a second. Would you just take 15 more seconds and just ask God to speak to you this morning around this idea of his forgiveness us granting forgiveness, making peace with one another. Would you just pray for your own heart to receive? (coughs) Father, thanks for hearing these prayers. You already know all the details You know things, actually, they don't know as they're praying and asking for your help. Would you come now in power? Would you speak to them? Would you 
open up their hearts to receive your word? Would you make them wise? Your word tells us to be like wise as serpents and yet innocent as doves. Would you help us hold on to the good news of the gospel that I actually think makes us wise and help us? There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's lots of shame and regret. There are um, two sides to this coin when we've been on both of them. We've hurt people and needed to be forgiven, and we've been hurt and needed to forgive. So we bring all that to you this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, there's, um, there's three contexts I want to just quickly name as we start this passage. One is just the fun context of baptism. To have a visible reminder of the fact that our God is a reconciling God. That he takes enemies and he makes them children. Even the scriptures would say things like we are dead in our sins. Part of the baptism imagery is to go from being dead in our sins, buried with Christ, and then being raised a new life. And so it's just fun to have that proclaimed at you eight times already. I'm mindful with the clock that you've already heard the gospel eight times. So if you're watching the clock and worried, I got you. It's okay. I hear it. So you've already heard that eight times. That's one context in the room. The other one is the culture that we live in. It's the times that we find ourselves. I don't think we've ever been unified as a people, but man, has the microphone been handed to some extreme voices that have given rise to an amplified understanding of just how divided we are. And so we hear a passage like this now with a ton of questions. There's personal questions about your relationships. There's things at work. There's things even in church. There's things in the world. And so this passage hits us in a context in 2022 where we're just kind of confused. We're already tipped towards outrage, maybe despair. Maybe you just turned everything off and gone into a hole. It's just kind of an amazing time in history where we hit a passage like this in a context culturally where I just think the volume is turned up to 11 and it's really loud all the time. And we find ourselves in spaces where we wonder, what do we do with a passage like this? And there's another context, which is the Gospel of Matthew. So these aren't just dropping in out of nowhere some advice or some techniques or some, some tips on peacemaking. And if they were that way, I bet you they would feel really thin or really flat, maybe. Maybe if this is just the first thing you've heard in the Gospel of Matthew, the first thing you've heard about Christianity, it might even strike you maybe as unrealistic. Like, here's four steps, and if I just follow these steps and everything's going to be okay. Maybe it's like when you bought something from Ikea and you get those instructions and it has that, that dude in there that like just has one wrench and one screwdriver and a bunch of pictures and you're like, no way. There's no way. This is not enough detail to put together this elaborate piece of furniture. Even though it's disposable furniture, it's still going to be hard to make it all last based on these thin instructions. I actually laughed this morning. I'm so excited about what's happening in the parlor and the work that's been done there, but there's a light hanging in the entryway that Literally, the instructions were just like one page of bullets. Didn't say what kind of bulb to put in it. Didn't say anything. So we're like scavenging the internet how to assemble this thing. So of course there's a bulb not working. Like it just says life is like that where we have thin instructions sometimes and we wonder how do those things match our complex situations. And so without being too like intricate, there's several things in Matthew that I think are important from the immediate context that help us step into this passage. Because when we do like marriage counseling with couples or premarital counseling, we always talk about the difference in communication between technique and the heart behind communication. And you actually need both. You need like a safe way to, to speak to each other, to organize your thoughts, to make sure everyone's being heard, to make sure you're not mishearing, to actually say back what you think they said. So they say, yep, yeah, that's what I said, or no, that's not 
what I said, or if I did say that, now that I hear you say it, it's not what I mean, let me change what I'm saying. Like, you need some sort of strategy to do that. So James 1.19, to be quick to listen and so to speak, so to become angry. Like, how do you actually do that? So there's a, a technique part of communication. But there's also a heart part of communication. Just a baseline desire to hear and be heard and to draw close to you and not to win an argument, but to, to be close with each other. So Adrian will often do this hand motion. She'll say, hey, instead of coming at it like this, would you come next to each other and then deal with a problem that's kind of from the same side? There's a heart behind that. I'm not trying to compete with you. I'm not trying to prove you wrong. I'm not trying to earn something or prove that I was right. I actually want to be close. I want reconciliation. And then what we normally say to a couple is, hey, the technique really matters. But if your heart is to hear and be heard and understand and be forgiving and be reconciled, then you've got a lot of wiggle room when it comes to the technique. You can actually really fumble on the technique side if your heart is in a space where you desire to hear and be reconciled. Because if they say, oh, you didn't hear me, you don't get angry, you go, oh man, I'm trying to hear you, can you try again? Like, you slow down, you calm down. The heart keeps you in a space where you can communicate. But if you're just leveraging technique and your heart's actually not to be uh, reconciled, it's not to actually understand, it's not to move towards forgiveness or be open to where you might have also been wrong, then you've got like a razor's edge to walk when it comes to communication. We have to do it like perfectly or they'll catch on to the fact that you actually aren't trying to draw close to them. You're trying to prove something. You're trying to litigate. You're trying to find a loophole. You're, you're trying to do something that actually would win simply the argument. So the technique really matters, but the heart actually gives us space to engage with each other. I think Jesus does both of those in this text. I think the first couple of verses we looked at from 15 to 20 is kind of a technique. It actually gives us some, some steps to take, a progressive step to move towards somebody. And then he tells this parable, which I think gets at the heart, gets at like what's really going on. How do I step towards peacemaking and a lack of forgiveness and bring my, my dysfunction into the conversation in ways that I'm honest about my need for grace as I actually navigate your need for grace as well. And what happens in a parable is Jesus normally is making kind of one main point. So it leaves lots of stuff unsaid. There's lots of things that this text doesn't tell us that we actually wonder about. What about abuse situations? What about a persistent situation? What about space where they've apologized and apologized and apologized and apologized and they just keep doing it over and over and over again? What about that situation? What, what about what it takes on my emotional health and mental health to actually have the conversation? When does that come into play? Whether or not I should just go to them? What if it costs me too much to go to them? What if there's addiction involved? What, what if there's codependence involved? What if I've been actually a big part of this and we're really tangled up in a communication vortex where we have a really hard time speaking something? What if I've overfunctioned for so long that we just have created a rut and a pattern? Like none of that is named in this text. And that's, that's kind of okay, and it's kind of frustrating. The good news for you is the Bible speaks about communication in, in lots of ways, and forgiveness in lots of ways, and how to draw close to each other in lots of ways. And maybe you would even say, the Bible is a peacemaking book. If at the center of the gospel is God making peace with people, and the story of the Bible is the story of how he does that, then I think in lots of places you see examples of what not to do and what to do. You see explicit commands on how to engage. You see wisdom literature kind of walking things out. You see how to pour out your heart honestly about your brokenness in the Psalms. You actually have a lot in the scriptures about how to do peacemaking. So there's some questions that you have that you bring to this text that Jesus doesn't answer. But I want to say two things. 
one, those questions really matter. Like they, they really matter. And Jesus is not after just an add water formula that if you do this, you like either cast some sort of spell that makes everything work out perfectly or you earn something if you do it correctly because that can lead to all kinds of legalism and pride and looking for loopholes. It just gets us into a weird space. So, so your exceptions, your questions, you're, you're like, what about online stuff? What about it didn't start online, then it went online. What do I do with that? How do I engage in the complexities? Like those questions really matter. And like we want to be the kind of church that goes slow and answers and walks alongside and listens and um, empathizes with you and tries to point you to what is clear so that you can actually make those complicated, nuanced decisions. So, so let me just promise you, if you find yourself in a tricky situation where you're going like, man, I don't know if my situation fits in this or this might feel like really bad advice based on where I'm at, like we would love to talk. Your, your situation matters. And what Jesus does is really instructive for us because he goes at the heart of the gospel, really, and grounds us there with permission and explanation and kind of pushing us to understand what's really going on inside of us and inside of other people with the parable that he tells. So Jesus actually goes at the heart. And I think if we can go there to what is most clear, then we can work out from the center to things that are not so clear. Because it's not that your situation would cancel out the idea that the gospel has application to your situation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I realize that can feel like total insider trade language. What I mean by that is the Christian story is of a God who forgave our debt. And this passage actually says it's an enormous, almost incalculable debt that we owed. And the Bible says that debt wasn't just like unfortunate or it was something that we messed up or didn't get quite right. The scriptures say it's actually rebellion that deserves the wrath of God. It likens it unto treason and says it actually puts us in a space where we're enemies and under the judgment of God, the just judgment of God. The wages of sin is death, the scripture says, that actually what I've done deserves and earns separation from God. And God in his love moved towards his enemies. The cross is the epicenter of that where we see Jesus actually dying in our place to pay the sacrifice for our sin because the debt has to be paid and the forgiver forgives in ways that actually absorbs that debt. So Jesus on the cross in his broken body and shed blood that we celebrate in communion every week is demonstrating his ability and desire to forgive, to, to reconcile. That, that's the gospel, that God came, that he paid the penalty for your sin. He lived the life that you should have lived he died the death that you should have died. And what he asks of you is not perfection. It's not even just like earnestness. It's faith and trust. To put your trust in him. That's all who believed. To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That, that is the Christian story. And that story relates to all the intricate, curious, un unclear, jagged, nuanced situations that you find yourself in. It's not as if your situation is outside of that. Now, you might need more, or you might need help, or you might need some deeper application, but you won't need less than the gospel as you move towards your college roommate, as you move towards your spouse, your, your adult child, people that you work with, people that you're in, in relationship with, your, your siblings. Those spaces won't need less than the gospel. So what Jesus does is goes right at the heart, which I think is really, really, really instructive for us even while he leaves some stuff on the table. Because Peter recognizes he leaves some stuff on the table. 
He says, hey, there's something about this that isn't adding quite up. So look with me in verse 21. We're just kind of jump in the middle here. I actually want to look at the heart of what he says, and then we'll go back to some of the technique. But Peter says in verse 21 of Matthew 18, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And the scholars would tell us that the kind of standard in the Jewish culture at that time was like three times. And not like three strikes in your out, but like, hey, do this more than once was the heart behind it. So he doubles that plus one, thinking this is pretty extravagant. And Jesus says to him, oh, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. So Peter asks a question, are there limits to this? Are there places where this wouldn't be wise? Are there spaces where my situation might fall outside of these four principles that you give us? And what Jesus does is tells a story. He tells a story that fits the context of what he's been doing in chapter 18. In chapter 18, remember the question is, who's the greatest? So it starts with our pride. And then it goes into this idea that we have to come like little children. And there's a warning about sin, and there's this beautiful declaration that God's the kind of God who goes after lost sheep. That's the immediate context of chapter 18. And if you go back just a couple of more chapters, you'll see some more beautiful things that connect to what's going on here. Remember in chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to die. That he came actually and his mission was to lay down his life for those who would follow him. And they fight him on that. It's not their expectation. But Jesus just starts with his own sacrifice. That's ringing in their ears as we come to this passage about reconciliation. So there's a gospel declaration that Jesus died in our place. And then he says, hey, you have to die as well to come and follow me. You have to die to yourself. You have to give up your rights. You have to actually lay down this sense of building your own identity if you're going to follow me. So Christ died. He calls us to die. Chapter 17, we hit the transfiguration that he's the glorious one. So the one who's saying this is not just a guru or a teacher or somebody with a God himself who is glorious. And this Remember a couple weeks we're in this text and there's this question about paying taxes and Jesus says, hey, go to the sea and pull out this fish. There'll be a coin in its mouth. And it's a kind of a bizarre story. But at the baseline, Jesus is saying, I'm able to provide for you in ways you didn't even have categories for. So those four things. Christ died in our place. His followers lay down their lives to follow him. He is glorious and beautiful and powerful and good, has everything that you need, and he's able to provide for you in ways that you can't even quite imagine yet. So you find yourself against the wall going, they're never going to change. If I acknowledge this, they're going to turn it against me and weaponize it. There's things that you feel and think that you need to hear those four truths. Christ died, calls you to die. He's glorious and he can provide for you in amazing ways as he goes after the lost sheep as he warns us of our sin, as he puts this thing in context of relationship, now we're ready to hear the story of the merciful servant. And it's a fascinating story. It's a, a, a legal monetary story. Look with me in verse 23. It says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So, so first stop in verse 23. He's saying this is what the kingdom of, like, of God is like. He's answering that question we've been wrestling with about identity of what is it like to live like God's people? Who, who are we and how do we live are the two identity questions that we wrestle with. And so he says, hey, the kingdom of heaven, it's like, it's like this. There's a king in that kingdom, which don't miss that idea here. And that's not us or our spouse or the person who offended us. God is the king. 
and he wishes to settle accounts with his servants. There, there's a ledger that you have with the king. There's places where there's transactions, there's debts, there's things that you have done with the king personally. He began to settle. One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold. This is the wage of sin, the, the cost of this rebellion and this brokenness. This, this rebellion to God actually deserves our very lives. He ordered his life to, his, to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant, facing this debt that he could not pay, and actually the scholars are uh, kind of confused or they're uh, maybe less helpful for me. There's some confusion on how much is 10,000 talents. And it matters with inflation or taking their monies or our monies. Uh, here's the best I could do. Talent is something like 20 years wages. That's a, like a lot of money. Um, I don't even know how to think about that kind of money, but it's a whole lot of money. Scholars would say it was the highest like unit of money they had. And he says 10,000 times 20 years wages. So get the idea. This is not a loophole like, yeah, I'm going to calculate that up and that's going to be how I'm going to pay that back. He's talking about something extraordinary, like 70 times seven. He's saying there's this inordinate amount. That's the way it starts with our debt. Christians start with the idea that I owe to the king more than I could ever possibly pay. And what's deserved from that is my very life. It's an impossible situation to be put in this spot where you would, in a debtor's prison, try to pay back that kind of money. I mean, like, it's something like 70-something billion dollars if you take the average income in Jackson County and you average that with the average income in Johnson County at somewhere like 38K a year, which might be going like, I'm doing pretty well. You might be, dang it, my employer, I don't know where you find yourself with that number. But if you take 38K and you take 20 times that and then 10,000 times that, you're into the billions. So that's how we see our debt, he says. So the servant, seeing his debt, knowing there's no way to pay it, he falls on his knees, verse 26, and implores him, says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And then here's the king's response. Knowing he could never pay, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Here's this number in the billions. Here's a, a person who's backed against the wall, knows they could never pay it. They cry out for mercy. They receive mercy. And the king then absorbs that debt. I think a good definition of forgiveness is simply absorbing the debt. From this text, actually, maybe 12 or 14 times, you see account language and cost language and debt language and pay language. This text is illustrating for us sin as transaction. And he's saying there's this debt that we could never fully pay and because we cry out for mercy the king wipes it out forgives it this is the good news of the gospel okay and then these parables have kind of a gotcha moment they have a shocking moment like at this point you're like whoa that's amazing and then he goes on to say in verse 28 but when that same servant went out he found one of his fellow servants somebody who's appeared to him who owed him a hundred denarii which scholars tell us this is like a hundred days wages which is not nothing. In that average number, that's like 10 grand. Like for me, if I lost 10 grand, that would be like really catastrophic. That would put us in a really bad spot. When you're living 
like in spaces like where we are, $10,000 is not nothing. I used to say this, like, it's a couple of bucks. It's not a couple of bucks. He would, he would feel this. Because remember, to forgive is to absorb the price. And I don't know how many like 10Ks you have just laying around, but this is a costly thing. So he's not minimizing the pain of forgiveness. He's not saying it's no big deal, get over it. He's acknowledging, hey, this is a lot of money. Comparatively, it's really, really small. And so I pulled out my calculator, and whenever I have my calculator out, when I'm setting, it's rarely like a helpful thing. And again, I've got inflation numbers and day numbers and labors and drachmas and talents and denarii and all kinds of stuff going on. Somewhere between 500 and 2,000 years. That's a pretty broad range, I realize. That statistically, that's a pretty large variant. Sometimes it would, pay, it would take you, if you paid every day this 100 denarii, it would take you either 500 or somewhere between 500 and 2,000 years paying that debt every single day to get to the number of what he actually owed. So if it's an account, you could write those checks that long. You could write 20,000 years of daily checks before you got to the amount. It's like an absurd, mind-blowing number. But the point is really clear. Your debt is significant, but not significant compared to what you owe. And in that space, what Jesus wants to put in front of us is the pain, the incongruence, the, the craziness, the insanity of receiving grace and then not extending it. So he says this servant went to a fellow servant who owes him a hundred days wages, ten grand. Again, it's not, it's not nothing. And listen to this. The, the fellow servant says exactly what he says. Have patience with me and I will pay you. You're meant to hear that. Kind of, that's what he said to the king. Now his fellow servant says that to him. Surely he'll go, oh yeah, I was forgiven. Let me give that to you. Instead, verse 30, here's the shocker. He refused and went and put him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. He actually went, it says, and he choked him, saying, pay back what you owe. He begs for mercy, and the man throws him in prison. All right, verse 31. When the fellow servants saw and heard this, what was taking place, like the two and three witnesses, the fellow servants see this, they're greatly distressed, which is a massive understatement. They went and reported back to their master all that had taken place. The master summons him and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, this number into the billions, which you could never possibly repay because you pleaded with me and asked for mercy. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailer, or actually the word can be torture, or one who actually exacts that money out of you until he should pay all that debt. It's an image actually of hell. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So hear the ending of that with some severity. And if we get stuck there, and actually I want to spend next week on this passage as well, I think it's so important for us to slow down and engage this. And I know there's a particular kind of hurt with church hurt and authority hurt. Because when Jesus gives the technique, he says you should bring your pain to the church. And what do you do when the church is maybe a place of that pain? So it's pretty complicated. So I want to slow down in that space. And even this text here is kind of tricky to understand. It sounds to you like it shouldn't be like that, that God just should be this infinitely forgiving God no matter what we do. But then you just stop and think about your own life. It's not actually forgiveness or it's not actually reconciliation. It's not actually genuine if the person says they're sorry and then keeps doing it over and over again. Again, the question is, what's it like to act like us? And it's like us extending and giving the kind of mercy and grace 
that we've received. We'll come back there next week, but could you just for this week as you pray, as you think about that situation that you prayed about as we started this text, could you just ask, like, am I making this person pay? Am I treating them like I've been treated? And am I living in light of the good news that I say I believe if I'm a follower of Jesus? Am I acting like one who's been forgiven this enormous debt that they could never actually pay? Because I think the best way to understand this is not that you could lose your salvation if you don't perform perfectly, but you never really understood what it meant to be forgiven. And not just cognitively trying to wrap your mind around it. Like like a lot of our children here, they're going to grow in their understanding of what it means to trust Christ. I don't mean that you're going to grow in that. I mean you're, you're rejecting it. You're, you're seeing it as transactional because you know people who use forgiveness and repentance language only to get more of what they want. Like a predator will use biblical passages and will weaponize them to keep somebody in a really unhealthy situation. So if that's what's going on. If someone is, is using repentance and forgiveness and mercy language but not acting that out in their relationships, Jesus says you should have no assurance that you're actually a follower of Christ. If you refuse, which is different than struggle, is different than wonder what's wise, is different than trying to cope with the pain, is different than processing with your therapist for a while, is different than dialoguing with your small group about what do I do next. Those are different things. As you're leaning into repentance and reconciliation, that's different than choking somebody out and refusing to absorb that payment yourself, which is what forgiveness is. I don't know where that finds you, and I want to just like, bring us into attention in the next couple of days. It's incredibly complicated. The world is really nuanced. Your situation is really, really nuanced. But at the center of it, if you're a follower of Jesus, has to be a desire to show this person the kind of mercy that you've been shown. Jesus gives lots of qualifiers. There's lots of ways to kind of talk about that. There's lots of ways even to be wise. So like he's already told us in Matthew 7, we should start with the log in our own eye and deal with the other person's offense like it's a speck. But then he goes on and says, hey, and don't throw to dogs what is sacred and give to pigs what's holy. He gives a qualifier. It's not just wildly making yourself vulnerable with unsafe people. Jesus is wise in what he teaches. But even in that situation, there is a desire for that person to have mercy. The same kind of mercy that you've received. And so I might just push this question to you. In that thing that you're stuck on, that place where you're wondering what to do, that place where you're, you're in this loop and you're not sure how to go forward, is there a desire in your heart for that person to experience mercy? Lots of nuance, lots of questions. Maybe you're not the one to speak it to them, but is that the way you're praying? Is that what you desire? The punchline of this text is that somebody would be forgiven their unpayable debt and then demand somebody pay something that's significant but nothing in comparison. This is why things like Psalm 51 talk about against God and God only have we sinned. Even though the dude murdered and committed adultery, those are really significant sins against other people. But the debt is so great compared to the king and what we owe him, it's, it's as if he's the only one that we've actually offended. That's how high the number is. So would you just like not stiffen your neck or, or, or not, not in that space say no way it can't be would you maybe ask God how it could be in the next couple of days? As we come back to this passage again next week and we want to talk about specifically like authority and church and hurt in those spaces, and maybe that's not where you're primarily hurt. Maybe it's, maybe it's very more personal. It's very relational. You share the same blood. It, it might be something way different. But I want to just ask you not 
to say how this couldn't be, but ask Jesus how it could be. I wonder if you just commit to that, the heart of this to kind of stay in that space. Because Jesus says that's the heart of what it means to actually understand you've been forgiven and then to extend that kind of grace to other people. And then from there, he gives this technique. He gives some steps. It's incredibly practical. Look back to me at verse 15. And it's shot through with love. The whole thing, even those moments of discipline, every parent knows it's actually more loving to discipline your child than just to let them do whatever the heck they want, whenever they want, however they want. Those children actually are not loved very well. It's those who have boundaries and those who actually move towards them that actually give, give a care for their child and actually move towards extravagant love. But Jesus gives four steps. Can I just give you four quick G's? And we're just going to fly, fly through this. He says first, to go to them, which is huge. It takes a risk. It's compassionate. It takes courage to not just sit on it, not stew on it, not tell somebody else about it, but go to them. If your brother sins against you, go. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone in a private way to honor them and the situation. And this is not abusers forcing their victims not to tell somebody. Again, there's some nuanced situations. This is in a relationship where someone has harmed you to confront them, to move towards them, right? He says, go. And then he says, keep the goal in mind. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That's the goal. So go and keep the goal in mind. The goal is not to be proven to be right. It's actually to gain your brother. But if he doesn't listen, then take two or three others with you so that the third you would be to, to get others involved, get others to help you. It says, take two or three others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is both justice, so someone's not falsely accused, and it's also support. It's help. So in the parable, it's people who are watching the situation going, whoa, this is not right. This is not okay. To have those voices in the conversation, because normally when you're tangled up in a situation relationally, it's hard to see clearly what's going on. So, so get some other people involved. And then he says in verse 17, and if you refuse to listen to them, then tell it to the church. So, so you would grow in your response to match the situation. If there's continued resistance, continued hard-heartedness, then you elevate that just like a parent does, just like God does in the Old Testament with his people. So you go, you keep the goal in mind, you get others involved, and, and you move in spaces where you grow in your response to them so that you actually can love them well. Because remember, the question is, what's it like to act like us? And if someone is not acting like us, it's really loving to say, hey, the way you're behaving is not in keeping with someone who's received the good news of the gospel. And we don't just start by like ejecting you, right? This is a long process. It's a thoughtful process that we'll look at some more next week. But, but see it as shot through with love because to move towards someone takes risk on your part, which is what Jesus has actually done for us. Jesus moved towards us, those who were his enemies, the only perfectly righteous, innocent person moved towards his enemies to be reconciled. That, that again, is the essence of the gospel. I didn't give you my like big outline. Here, here's what it was, though. It was a gospel posture in that story, a gospel pattern, and then a gospel promise or a promise of power. Because look in verse 20 with me, and I realize I'm skipping some specs here about the church we'll talk about next week. But just hear this as we go to communion. In the middle of this conflict, in the middle of this um, acknowledging the pain, in the middle of moving towards a person, he says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That means a lot of things, but at the very baseline, it means that Christ is present with us 
when we're trying to apply the good news of the gospel to our situations, which means there's hope for that person to change, that there's power in the forgiveness of Christ, and he could actually do something in that moment to soften the hearts of his enemies, just like he softened our hearts. It's a promise of great hope. It's a promise of of Christ's very presence with us. There's a gospel posture, a gospel pattern, and gospel power that this text puts in front of us that we then get to bring to communion and ask for God to speak to us. So here's what I want to do as I kind of crash land. I really am trying to kind of honor our time. I want us to be able to sing, because I think actually if you could sing a little bit about some of these concepts, God might press them into your heart a little bit. I want to give you some space to do that. So let me just kind of crash land here on this idea that whatever you're thinking right now about no way, it can't be. This is too complicated. It's been going on too long. Not with them, not with me, not again. In all those spaces, would you hear the promise that Jesus promises to be with you? That, that might feel really thin today, but I'm going to ask over the next couple of days that you would pray that God would give you hope in that. I'm going to pray for you that God would give you hope because we want to be a people that apply the extravagant grace of the gospel to all of our situations, which is why we take communion every single week. We do it simply to remind ourselves that it's on that cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed that we have hope for everything. And that would include these kinds of relationships. I know it's nuanced. I know it's complicated. Bring all that to Jesus and ask for his help. Bring it to him and ask him to speak to you. Bring it to him and ask for him to work in your situation in ways that actually uh, own the fact that he's the kind of God who forgave you an inordinate debt. Where we take communion is now in four lines. We'll come down an aisle, turn and go back up. But it's for all those who trust Christ. You'll tear a piece of the bread off and you'll dip it in the cup. And the person will say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is bloodshed for your life. And it's a declaration of the gospel. If you're not trusting Christ, I would invite you just to stay in your seat and pray. There's prayers in the back of that bulletin that would give you some language of what it might sound like to talk to God in this moment. But don't, don't come forward to take communion. There's no pressure here to pretend anything. You're welcome just to sit and ask God to speak to you. But for all those who are trusting Christ, I'll invite you to come and take communion. Let me pray for us. And then we'll take it and then we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Thanks for the ways that you have radically, extravagantly, mind-blowingly absolved us of sin by absorbing the penalty of what we had done. It's in your broken body and shed blood. It's in your sacrifice that this debt was paid. It came at an incredible cost to you. And the scriptures say that you did it with joy. You endured the cross with joy Uh, The hope of reconciliation was so beautiful to you. You sacrificed your very life with joy. Would you now fill the room then with a soberness, with a a joyfulness as we remember what we've been forgiven, and, and with help as we bring these complicated situations to you? I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And come when you're ready.